Now, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 3. For those of you who might be new to us um, and interested in knowing more about Gray Road, we have a Discovering Church membership class coming up. You don't have to, you're not committing to join the church by coming to the class, uh, but it is a way to learn about us. And um, I was wrong last week about the last week about the date. It will begin February 21st, not February 7th. So that's Wednesday nights beginning February 21st. It is good, and I am thankful. Uh, for Kevin's prayer for clarity. One of the things that came along with my illness this week was um, a fair amount of fuzzy-headedness. And uh, I cannot say that it is gone. For some of you, you will notice no difference between today and any other day that I preach. So it may just be me noticing the fuzzy-headedness as you always do. All right? So um, so we're thankful that... uh, in, in all the years that I was, uh, I won't go into it, but I was sick for a long time, and, and there were uh, many Sundays where, you know, every preacher knows that when you go to preach God's Word, you need God's help. You need God to strengthen you. We all know that. And then there are certain days when you absolutely know that there is no strength in you, and then having preached, you actually know that you needed God's strength. Uh, Such is the case today. I'm thankful for those of you who knew I was ill, didn't want to make a big splash about it, but that you have prayed. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, uh, this Gospel written to give certainty to faith. And today we come to the ministry of John the Baptist, who prepares the way for Jesus' arrival. And uh, we're going to read Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. Uh, If you need it, it is on page 858 of the Bibles in the pews. Beginning in verse 1 through verse 22 of Luke chapter 3. This is what the Spirit says. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we come to your word, we ask for your help. We pray that you will give clarity to both speaker and all of us who hear clarity of mind and word. Would you open our ears to hear your truth and open our hearts to receive it as your word? Would you give us grace that we would respond to it in faith? May Jesus be glorified as your word is preached. In Christ's name, amen. Well, tomorrow is another Monday. And for many of you, you will get up and you'll go to work and you'll prepare for the usual Monday morning banter. What did you do over the weekend? Um, how did the NFL, you know, talk about how the NFL games went. Some of you crazy people will still be talking about when pitchers and catchers uh, report. And of course, there will be all the witty comments about how it's Monday. But what if this happens? You arrive at work to find out a visitor is coming soon, and not just any visitor, a VIP. Maybe the new CEO of your company, maybe some workplace leadership teamwork guru, maybe an expert in your particular field. They're coming to stay for three weeks in your department, and that you need to be prepared. How do you think that might change the average workplace? 
Seems like a lot might happen. Conversations might be reshaped by the imminent coming of this visitor. You might get to work a little earlier each day. You might dress a little nicer. You might, the whole office would be marked with an atmosphere of expectation waiting for the arrival of this VIP. And here in Luke 3, the arrival of Jesus is imminent, and God sends John his prophet to announce Jesus' arrival. As it said in the words of Isaiah the prophet, his job, the God through him, in many ways would make mountains come down and raise up valleys, and he would make it clear to all that God's salvation has arrived. If that phrase seemed familiar, all flesh shall see the salvation of God, that's because back in the temple, remember Simeon held baby Jesus and said, my eyes have seen the salvation of God. And now through John, it's going to be proclaimed that everyone's eyes are going to see the salvation of God, the one who is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is no ordinary visitor, is He? If you just read the book of Luke from the beginning, you find out He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He's uh, the, the, the King who's going to reign forever. He's the Lord of all. He's going to defeat all our enemies, forgive all our sin, fulfill all of God's promises in the Old Testament. And so John has come to say, prepare the way. And really, his whole ministry, I've summed up in two different words, listen and look, listen and look, listen, listen to God's message, a message of repentance, and look, look to God's Son, to Jesus. And I'm going to use those two words as kind of the signpost to work our way through this chapter. So first, John's ministry essentially says, listen to God's message. John is a prophet. Before he's even born, you remember, if you remember back, way back in chapter 1, an angel comes and tells John's father that his ministry will be marked by the spirit and power of Elijah. And then after he's born, Zechariah holds him, his father, and says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And if that's not enough for you, if you just think carefully about how John is introduced here in Luke 3, it'll be clear he's a prophet, just like all those prophets in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, prophets are often mentioned in connection with the rulers of their day. They spoke during the reigns of so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so in Israel or so-and-so in Judah. And what is it that we see in verses 1 and 2? Well, look at it. You have the leaders of the day. Tiberius Caesar and tetrarchs and governors and the high priest. And also in the Old Testament, you have these words, you have a phrase that comes over and over and over again. It's in uh, Hosea 1.1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. And look at verse 2, the end of it. The Word of God came to John. John is a prophet, in many ways the last prophet, the one who introduces the Lord Jesus Christ. And the main function of a prophet is to speak for God, to receive God's message, and then to deliver it 
to God's people. And all throughout the Old Testament, there is an expectation that when God speaks through His prophet, you cannot brush it off. You cannot dismiss it. You must listen to it. And notice a few things about God's message through John, his prophet. The first thing that I notice is that it's rather surprising. It's a surprising message. Not the content, just the arrival of it. It's surprising in one sense because God hasn't spoken through a prophet for 400 years. Not since the ministry of Malachi. However, it's also surprising in God's choice of His spokesman. If you were writing this and you wanted a great and powerful God to deliver a to, to deliver a great and powerful message, you might expect that a great and powerful man would deliver it. If not the governor, if not Caesar, if not one of the tetrarchs, at least the high priest. But it's no one on a throne or in the temple who delivers the message, who introduces the Messiah. It's a man in the wilderness. Such a strange place. It's not the center of authority. It's not the place everyone goes to find answers. It's out there. Now, but if you know your Bibles, you know that God working in surprising ways is not actually all that surprising, is it? Even if you just think about what's happened in Luke, right? Here is the Christ, the King of the universe, the Messiah, and He's going to be born of a virgin from Nazareth. Nowhere. And the first news about the Messiah, who does it go to? Shepherds. Not priests. Not kings. And Jesus, this one who will rule and reign, the most important figure in all of human history, is not born to the rich. He's born in a poor family. It's not surprising, really, for those of us who know our Bibles, but it is surprising. But this is how God works, isn't it? He's always choosing people the world would never choose. He's always choosing people that the world would call foolish or weak or nobodies. And He makes them part of His family, and He uses them to build His kingdom. Actually, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're new to the church, I don't know, but uh, it might surprise you that the most important message of each week does not actually come from politicians or world leaders or news anchors. It comes from very unimportant men standing behind pulpits with an open Bible in front of them. <laughs> It'll never make headlines. It's not going to go viral. But God's Word explained and applied, a, a preacher saying what God says is the most important message that you will hear. It is the most important message that I will hear, and that is pretty surprising to most people. Because here we are in this little patch of wilderness called Gray Road. We're not, in, we're not, at, the, we're not at the state capitol. We're not at the municipal building. We're not in the halls of Congress. Here we are just on this little patch of ground on 5500 Gray Road preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as surprising as it is, 
it's the most important message the world will ever hear. It's surprising. But it's also confrontational. As a prophet, John's message is like every other prophet, and the main message is repent. But you know, I got to thinking this week, and and we Christians don't actually have a corner on the word repent. We don't have a corner on the idea of repenting. This is what people get so upset at the church about, is that we're always telling people that they need to change, that they need to turn, that they need to stop doing what they're doing and go in a different direction. And people are quite upset about this, but I got to thinking this week, and here's what struck me, is that anybody who has any real conviction usually calls other people to change their mind. Just this week, I saw a famous atheist uh, in an interview, and he, he basically would, if he were standing here, he would tell all of us, he wouldn't use the word repent, but he would say, stop reading that one book and get with science. Stop believing in fairy tales. What did he do in that interview? He called us to repent. Anybody with any conviction, say, about sexuality or gender or war or presidential politics or economics, no matter which side of the issue they're on, if they have a deep conviction about it, you know what they would tell the person on the other side of the issue? You've got to stop thinking that way. God, you've got to come to the right side of this. In fact, most of culture is looking at us saying, you've got to get on the right side of history. What do they do when they say that? They're saying, repent. Turn around. Get on the right side of things. Everyone with deep convictions believes that those with opposite convictions should change because they're wrong. And even those who think every conviction is fine, they look at people who think every conviction is not fine. What do they want them to do? Change. Repentance is all over our culture. And in some ways, that's what John is doing. He has a deep conviction. But unlike all these other areas, John's message is not his own opinion. It's not even his own message. It's not his idea. He is simply the one who is bringing God's message. It's actually God that is calling for the repentance. And it's a call that's confrontational. And you know that right out of the gate because as soon as John the Baptist steps up in verse 7, he addresses the crowd. Brood of vipers. Now, last Sunday morning we had uh, joint Sunday school uh, to talk about baptism, actually. Can you imagine if I had started that way? I get up, I make sure everybody has the papers, and then I say, good morning, you brood of vipers. Well, I might not be here this week if I had done that. I don't know. (laughs) But he calls in a way that is confrontational. And as you might imagine, not everyone responds well to this call to repent. In verses 19 and 20, we see Herod ends up throwing him in prison. It's interesting, I was just listening uh, just this morning, actually, to uh, a message on 1 Kings 18 and, and the ministry of Elijah. 
And it's interesting that Elijah is delivering God's message, right? Elijah is delivering God's message to God's people. There will be no rain for three years. And what does evil King Ahab call him? You troubler of Israel. This is how people, this is, look, the fact of the matter is, is that we're not all that different. If we are, if we are sinning and someone knows it and comes and calls us to repentance, if, if our heart is not right, you know what? We're not going to respond great to that, are we? We're going to get angry. We're going to shut them out. We're going to push them away. That is what happens. We shouldn't actually be surprised if there are legal ramifications in the future if we keep calling people to repent, if we keep telling people that the way that they are now is not good enough. The way that we were all when we were born is not good enough, and we can never be enough. We must repent. As long as we call people to align their thinking and their lives with biblical truth, the reality is, is that it is a confrontational message that not everyone enjoys. In fact, none of us enjoy it at first, do we? I mean, you're not going to get up and go to work tomorrow and hope that your boss comes in and tells you how wrong you are, right? But this is John's message. Verse 3 says he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now, baptism was not uh, a new thing on the scene with John. If a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, they would, all, they would go through a ceremony of baptism, of ceremonial washing, of cleansing as part of that process. And here's the thing. If all of John's audience were Gentiles, we'd be like, yeah, this makes sense. But you know what? They're not. If you read the other gospel accounts, you find out the people who are coming out to him are from Judea and from Jerusalem. And Matthew says there are even Pharisees and scribes in the crowd. And John looks at these religious folks who have all of the spiritual advantages. They were raised in a Jewish home. They were taught the Old Testament Scriptures. They had the temple and the festivals and the traditions. They had it all. And he looks at them and calls them to repent. Because not even having all the spiritual advantages of having parents who are Christians and grandparents who are praying for you and being taught the Bible in Sunday school or at your school or wherever it is, none of that stuff actually gains us any ground with God. We're no better off. And he looks at them and he repents. And obviously some of them are reaching for their wallets, ready to pull out their religious heritage card and say, um, can you check here? I am a verifiable child of Abraham. Verse 8, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Don't think that you're right with God just because of your religious pedigree. I mean, praise God for a healthy spiritual pedigree, but don't count on it to be right with God. It's an advantage, but it's not a lock. 
It's no guarantee. The tree of your religious life, John says, may look quite green and leafy, but there's no fruit. It's obviously all dead and rotting away on the inside, and the only thing that those trees are fit for is to be cut down and to be thrown into the fire. Actually, that reminds us of a very significant difference between the Bible's call to repent and the way that the world calls us to repent of the way that we're thinking and get on board with the cultural line. Rejecting the world's call to, to, to repent will likely mean that you are an outcast for the rest of your life. If you refuse to listen to the world's call to repent and to get on board and go along with the cultural line and buy into all the ideologies and the worldview, you will be an outcast. Jesus actually says so. But if you reject God's call to repent, you'll be cast out for all eternity. You see, friend, you'll either face the wrath of the world or the wrath of God. What the Bible says in verse, I think, 20, the unquenchable fire. It is a confrontational message. But if we listen to it, it's also a fruitful message. This is what John calls them to, is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He doesn't, he doesn't call them to other things. He doesn't want them to simply hear what he's saying. He wants them to listen, submit to it. And if we do, it will show in our lives. It will blossom like the fruit on a tree. Well, the crowd wants to know what kind of fruit could this mean. Now, John speaks very specifically to them. These are not the only three fruits of repentance, okay? But here we have three very good examples, uh, starting in verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So for this particular crowd, John gives, says three things. Share with those in need. Have integrity in your work. Don't abuse the power that you're given. Now, just take those three things for a second. Can you imagine how much better the world would be if we saw those things actually take place in our workplaces and in our communities and in our lives? Sharing with those in need, having integrity in work, and not abusing power that's been given to you. Well, actually, all three of these things have, the, have a similar theme, and they all involve stop serving self. Okay? Share with those in need. Don't hoard all of your stuff for you. Give freely. Tax collectors, they would pay to be part of the tax collecting. They would kind of buy a bid. They would bid their way in, kind of like a 
like a taxi driver buys a medallion, you know, and they can use, you know, and then they're authorized. But then they would charge more than is necessary so that they could make a lot of money in this tax collecting. And what he's saying is don't collect any more than is necessary. So have integrity in your work and stop manipulating the system in order to serve you. And the soldiers, well, they could get whatever they wanted. They just used threats. They just used force. And John says to them, don't use your power, the authority that's been given to you. Don't use it to serve you. And actually, turning away from self is the basic fruit of repentance, isn't it? It's a very basic fruit of repentance to turn, deny self in order to serve and please God and to serve others. This is how Jesus speaks just a few chapters later in chapter 9, uh, in verse 23. He says, and, and Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That is what it means to follow Jesus. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and self. You cannot serve God and fill in the blank. No one else can have that place in your life. And so you see what, what, what John is calling them to is to this repentance that bears fruit. You see, repentance isn't merely a feeling. It is not deep thoughts about how wrong I've gone. It's not even shedding tears, although you may have deep sorrow and you may think deeply about it and you may shed tears. But at its core, repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart that shows itself in a change in our lives, a change that can be seen, a change that can be heard. We don't talk about the same things or in the same way that we once did. We don't make the same decisions that we once did. Everything is different. That's what repentance is. The fruit is different. And so I wonder if you call yourself a Christian, is there fruit of repentance in your life? I mean, start with these three things. Do you share with those in need? Do you work with integrity? Is, would that be the testimony of your coworkers? Whatever position God has put you in, do you use it to serve others or do you use it to serve yourself. Is there fruit of repentance? How are you denying self to follow Jesus? You see, friends, if we search our hearts and we search long and hard and we find no answer, then it may very well be that we should have no assurance that we actually belong to Jesus. A friend of mine and I in Nashville, we got to where we'd say the evidence of a changed life is a changed life. Repentance is fruitful. When we're actually listening to God's message, it bears fruit in our lives. And John is preaching God's message, this surprising message that confronts us with repentance and calls us to bear fruit, and we must 
listen to it. But not only must we listen to God's message, we must look to God's Son. Look to God's Son. John's ministry gets the crowd pretty excited. I mean, they're, they're kind of wondering if John is maybe more than he's letting on. Maybe he's more than just a prophet. Maybe he is the Christ that we've been waiting on. But John quickly points them away from himself and to Christ. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, so to clear his threshing floor and to gather his, the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." Now, as we think about those words and as we think about Jesus' baptism afterwards, two things become clear about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is supreme. Jesus is supreme. Uh, John says He is mightier. Now, John's ministry is mighty. It is powerful. But wait until Jesus comes. His words will leave you speechless. His miracles will demonstrate His power. He will heal the sick and cast out demons and raise the dead. I mean, there is no one like Him. Jesus is supreme. He is so supreme that John says, I'm not even worthy to untie His sandals, a, a task that Jewish servants could opt out of because they were above it. And John says, I'm not even good enough to do it when it comes to Jesus' sandals. Jesus is supreme. John baptizes with water, indicating one is seeking forgiveness. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, giving the assurance of forgiveness. John's baptism symbolizes cleansing. Jesus' baptism brings cleansing. John warns about the fire of God's wrath, and Jesus will bring the fire of God's wrath. Jesus is supreme. But also, Jesus is Savior. When we get to verse 21, here we are at the banks of the Jordan River, and many are baptized, and Jesus is also baptized. And maybe you wonder, why is it that Jesus is baptized? I mean, it's a good question. Because if you just read all of chapter 3, why are all these other people being baptized? As an expression of repentance. John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance. So, if Jesus is baptized, does that mean that Jesus has something to repent of? You have to ask that question. But the Bible answers it overwhelmingly for us and says, absolutely not. Look, if Jesus had sinned to repent of, we wouldn't be talking about Him. We certainly wouldn't be singing to Him and worshiping Him, and obeying Him, and following Him, and longing to please Him, and trusting in Him. Well, then why is He baptized? Well, put very simply, He is baptized not because He is a sinner, but because He came to stand in the place of sinners, in our place. There He is, standing in the Jordan River, identifying with us 
He is identified by God as his own, and he identifies with us by being in the water with us. And not only does he stand in our place, he's going to die in our place. As his death is looming on the horizon, he actually quotes Isaiah 53 to his disciples and applies it to himself. Luke 22, this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus stands in our place as sinners. He dies in our place as sinners so that we can stand in His place righteous before God. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Son of God, and all of heaven says the same, doesn't it? After He's baptized, what is it that happens? Look at verses 21 and 22. The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And if you take the time this afternoon and you want to read through the genealogy that's in the rest of chapter 3, what you'll find is the genealogy testifies to the same thing, that he is the Savior because he is the son of David, of the tribe of Judah. And it's no accident that Luke's lineage of Jesus goes all the way back to the very last words in chapter 3, the Son of God. Jesus is the one. There is no other. So look to him. Listen to God's message. Look to God's son. That is the message of Luke chapter 3. And that is the message for our world today, isn't it? That is the message for you and for me. We must listen to God's message. You you, you see, God's message is not that you're okay and I'm okay and everything's okay, and that you're okay and I'm okay just the way we are, and that you're okay and I'm okay, and all we need is just to add a little Jesus to our lives. No, that is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that sin has ruined everything, including us. We are ruined by sin, and so that is why we must repent, turn around, turn our eyes from ourselves, turn our eyes from the world, turn our eyes from rebellion against God, and look to God's Son in faith. Look to Jesus. Look to the supreme Savior of the world who lived and died in our place that we might be forgiven. Will you listen to God's message? Are you listening to God's message? Are you looking to God's Son? If you are, then rejoice in that salvation. But if not, dear friend, if not, don't harden your heart against what God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. If not, today is the day of salvation. Listen to God's message today. Look to God's Son today. If you come to Him by faith, 
he says he will never cast you out. Your friends may cast you out. Your family may cast you out. Your work may cast you out. But if you come to Jesus, he will never cast you out. Listen to God's message. Look to God's Son and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, how we rejoice in the coming of Jesus. May your words spoken by your Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Open up our ears that we might hear your message, God. Capture our hearts that we might look to your Son. Help those who are Christians to live lives of repentance, lives of turning away day by day. from sin, from the world, from things that would ruin us, and to walk by faith in Christ. And God, for those who are not, oh God, I pray that their heart would be warned against playing some kind of religious card or good works card or religious heritage card that that instead they would listen to your call to repent and look to your Son, our Savior, that they might be saved. For Christ's sake and in his name, amen. Amen. Well, would you stand? We're going to sing. Of all the things that we might have when we come to meet God face to face,